want to make your way back to your seat, <clears throat> take out your copy of God's Word. Make your way back, take out your copy of God's Word, turn to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at almost the entire chapter, um, 50-something verses. And so here's how we're going to read this this morning. Uh, I'm going to read it as we go and as we kind of hit these different points. And so we will read God's Word, but... Let me start off by just reading um, the first few verses for us. Matthew chapter 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they didn't have much soil. So immediately they sprang up, but since they had no depth of soil, when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil, and produced grain, some a hundredfold or sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came. Thank God for these disciples and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, Many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, this is your word, and we pray that the spirit in our hearts would meet the same spirit that inspired these words to help give us understanding. Open our minds to think about these things. Open our hearts to receive and to experience these things, God. We pray that we would meet you through the text this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, <clears throat> we all know what it's like to go to the doctor. We know the appointment. We know the waiting. Uh, we know the waiting room. We know the paperwork that they lose every six months to make you do it again. We know uh, when you get into the exam room, you're sitting, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. But imagine if you get there to that point and the doctor walks in and goes, you know, you've done this. Like, you've been here. You've seen this exam room. I use pretty simple tools. This isn't surgery. We're just going to check your vitals and do some simple things. I think you got this today. Why don't you give yourself the exam? Why don't you check your own vitals? Why don't you just kind of look yourself over? We have other machines down the hall. If you think something's more serious, you need to go look at it. I think you have the exam yourself today. You don't really need me. You've been through this enough. You got it. That might be the last time we go to that doctor's office. But in this passage this morning, Matthew 13, this is a, a passage, a, a whole chapter filled with parables. And I think Jesus is inviting us to examine ourselves this morning. 
I, I do think he wants us to perform an exam on our own hearts, but he knows that we can't do a perfect job. So he doesn't leave us guessing or wondering or lying to ourselves about how we're really doing. And so he takes up the exam in a way that only he can. So this morning, we're going to examine our heart as it relates to Jesus. That's, that's the theme of what we're looking at this morning. We're going to examine our heart as it relates to Jesus. Now, we've been talking about we're covering big sections of Matthew. So we could preach like eight sermons through Matthew 13. I'll acknowledge that. So there's going to be things we leave out, things we're moving quickly over. But I think it's really neat to see the structure of Matthew chapter 13. Because we see par uh, parables that kind of mirror each other. We see him give two different explanations of why he's giving parables. Some parables seem to have a similar theme. And then there's another set of parables that seems to have a similar theme. And if you follow the language closely uh, to some of these parables, he's speaking to the crowds. And then other parables, he seems to have pulled away and is speaking to the disciples. So there's all of this pattern that's happening in Matthew 13. But I think through it all, what we see is that Jesus wants to examine our hearts. And this is our first point this morning, testing your heart. Jesus begins this chapter with a parable. Now, I found myself questioning this week, why doesn't he begin with the explanation? Like it would have made more sense to put verses 10 to 17 first and explain why parables, and then to give the parable and the explanation back to back. I think part of what is happening here and the way Matthew has arranged his gospel is he's being a good writer, okay? Like God uses that, um, and, and I think Matthew's being a good writer. He's introducing us in the middle of conflict, throwing us into the deep end with a parable so that we go, what in the world did that just mean? So that we actually put ourselves in the place of the crowds and the disciples and we read verses one to nine and we go, what? You're talking about farming? I, I'm, I'm not picking up what you're saying, Jesus. And he wants us to feel some of that. And, and then in this first parable, he's talking about seed that's going out in different places and how those different places receive or reject the seed that's sown there. Then the disciples, like I said, thank God for them, ask what we're all thinking. Why are you doing this? Why are you speaking to them in parables? And Jesus, to answer them, um, says a lot of things, but he, he kind of culminates on this quote from Isaiah chapter 6. If you've been in church for a long time, you might know Isaiah chapter 6. If you've not been in church for a long time, let me set the scene. Isaiah 6 is often used in a service focused on missions. You say, why is it used in a service focused on missions? Because God is saying, who's going to go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And so a church will build a service all around their mission partners and missionaries and raising funds for missions. And they'll preach from Isaiah chapter 6 where he says, here I am, send me. But let me read that for you in passage, uh, in, that passage in context. And maybe like I've done before, you can go home and break a couple coffee mugs where this verse might be on it. This is Isaiah. He says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. That's the end of verse 8. Isaiah 6, 8. It's a great missions verse, right? Listen to the mission God gives them. <laughs> Tell me how many of you want to sign up to be a missionary with this mission. And he, God, said, Go and say this to the people. Okay, you're going to go to the people. Here's your message. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Here is your mission, O 
wonderful and willing Isaiah. Your mission is to go preach a message from God that will harden the hearts of your hearers so that they never respond. Here I am, send me. Why in the world would Jesus pull this passage and what in the world does this mean? Preach a message with the purpose of it hardening the hearers? Well, Isaiah listened. So let's look at what Isaiah did to see what God meant by it and how he obeyed it and how Jesus is thinking that he fulfills it. When Isaiah heard this call from God, he went out and he preached this message that hardened people's hearts and people didn't respond well to Isaiah. But if you think you're gonna preach a message that no one understands, you would think about preaching something that's impossibly complex and difficult, right? You would think about preaching uh, hours upon hours, a really hard and twisting message with thousands of points and that's incredibly hard to understand and follow. That's quite the opposite of what Isaiah did though. Isaiah went to great lengths to make his message as simple as possible. Listen to uh, Old Testament scholar Alec Matir. He, in fact, Isaiah, faced the preacher's dilemma. If hearers are resistant to the truth, the only recourse is to tell them the truth yet again, more clearly than before. But to do this is to expose them, expose the hearers to the risk of rejecting the truth yet again, and therefore exposing them to the risk of increased hardness of heart. It could even be that the next rejection will prove to be the point at which the hearer is hardened beyond recovery. Isaiah's task was to bring the Lord's word with fresh and even unparalleled clarity. But in their response, the people would reach the point of no return. What Jesus is saying is, I am preaching in parables to reveal the hearts of my listeners. Parables reveal where someone's heart stands before the Lord. It's exactly what Isaiah was saying. It's not that Isaiah's message made their hearts more hard, although that's what happened after hearing it, continuing to reject it. What happened was Isaiah's message revealed that their hearts were already hard to the Lord and his message. So the parables in Matthew 13 simply confirm that certain hearts are hard and certain hearts toward Christ are not and are receptive to his message. We talked about that a little bit last week. But then later on in verses 34 and 35, remember how I talked about the mirroring sections of chapter 13? So you get him explaining in the first part why parables, and then in the second part of Matthew 13, he explains it again in verses 34 and 35. Matthew says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables, and he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, and then he quotes Psalm 78, which Anne read, verse two. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. What's that about? Asaph is looking back at the history of God's people, and what he's uttering that's been hidden is not new things, but he's summing up the sweeping movements of history and show how God has been at work all along. So how is Jesus fulfilling that? Well, where, Isaiah, where Asaph tried to pull themes together and showed how all of history had a culmination, Jesus is that culmination. So in his teaching, he is saying all of history, just as Asaph in Psalm 78 tried to point to the history of God working among his people, Jesus does that infinitely greater than Psalm 78 and Asaph. Jesus in his teaching says, yes, all of history does have a theme and it's pointing to me. So the parables have two purposes. One is to reveal hearts. Are they hard toward Christ or are they welcoming and receiving the message of Christ? But the other purpose is that they reveal hearts specifically as they respond to Christ. Not just reveal hearts in general. Not just a general heart exam, but 
How do they respond to Jesus, the culmination, the climax, the pinnacle of history? All of history exists in reference to him. So then he gets to explain the first parable in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. He explains it. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another 60 and in another 30. So the seed in the first parable represents the word of the kingdom. So this story is all about how people represented by the different kinds of soil respond to the word of the kingdom. Some of this seed doesn't penetrate the soil. Some of times when the word of God is spoken, it doesn't even penetrate a heart. But sometimes it'll penetrate someone's heart and you'll think they're responding or maybe this is you, you think you're responding to the word, but you realize there's no root, so as soon as there's any difficulty in life, fall away. But this word of the kingdom, what is it? It's the word that they've been speaking all throughout Matthew. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. The word of the kingdom is the gospel of the kingdom. It's the good news that Christ has come. He is the king, and he is bringing God's true and lasting kingdom. We, therefore, must repent, turn away from the other kingdoms we're trying to build and follow, and follow this one true king. So, What is Jesus trying to do here? This is probably our longest point of the morning. And we're bringing it to an end with this question. What's Jesus trying to do with these parables? These parables act as a spiritual heart test. There's lots of different heart tests. You could simply take a pulse to see if the heart's beating. You check your heart rate. I'm getting on the treadmill at the gym. You could put your fingers on the thing and it tells you how much your heart's beating. You could check your blood pressure, you could do an EKG, you could do all sorts of things to test the health and the function and the condition of your heart. But the standard of health that Jesus is measuring our hearts by is how it responds to him. The health of your heart is determined in reference to Jesus. Your heart is healthy to the extent that it is beating in sync with Jesus. Your heart is healthy to the extent that it's beating in sync with Jesus, and your heart's unhealthy to the extent that it's out of sync with him. So let's look at a couple of these parables, and let's see the tests that Jesus gives us to examine our hearts. Let's look together at verses 31 and 33. 31 through 33, excuse me. It says, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, When it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. He told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. He gives two very short parables right here. And he'll give two more later on. We'll look at the next test in just a minute. Two very short parables that both tell a pretty similar story. Something that's very small and minuscule and overlooked become something glorious and influential. Mustard seeds were proverbially small. They were used all the time to describe something small. 
So don't say, oh, it's not literally the smallest seed. The Bible must be full of lies. Just chill, okay? Can we just say that? <laughs> it's hyperbole, figures of speech. We do that all the time. I just did that. We don't do it all the time, but you know, you get how sayings work. Let's not be weird about this, okay? But it was small. It was used all the time. And leaven doesn't take much leaven to work into a dough of flour for it to mix throughout the whole loaf. And Jesus uses these examples to describe what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God had small beginnings, right? I mean, go all the way back to Abraham, a people who was a, he was a wanderer. He had nothing. And it says in the Old Testament that he didn't choose Abraham because of his size or the strength of the nation. God didn't go out and pick the biggest nation to call his. He actually did quite the opposite. But then even Jesus has quite small beginnings, right? That's what we read about all throughout Matthew. It's almost shocking that this man from Nazareth would be the Messiah. But Jesus is saying that when it comes to building a kingdom, it's not always what looks outwardly impressive that matters. This is the story of Saul and David. We just walked through this in our men's Bible studies, and <clears throat> the people of Israel wanted a king. So God said, you want a king? I'll give you exactly what you're looking for. We're gonna see in just a minute. That's what God's judgment is. It's him giving us exactly what we want. He says, I'll give you the exact king you're looking for. He's handsome, head and shoulders above the rest. Warrior, fighter. He's a, he, he'll look impressive to the nations around you. And it was a total disaster. So God anointed another king. He told uh, the prophet Samuel, it's going to be one of these sons of Jesse. So naturally, Samuel goes to Jesse's house and says, show me your oldest son. And whatever sort of test he does, he realizes this oldest son is not the king. He's like, well, let, line up. Your, he sets seven sons out. And he goes oldest, and he starts working his way down. He's like, God, y'all, it seems like this ought to be going through the oldest one. He's the one in line. Why is that the oldest or the second or the third or the seventh and he turns to Jesse and goes, you got any more sons? Because God said here, but he said no to all these. And he says, well, I got one out in the field. He's the youngest. He's the runt. Let me go grab David. And sure enough, the small beginnings of the kingdom start with the son that was forgotten by his father in the field watching sheep. Or how about 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, where Paul teaches this same idea of small beginnings to the church in Corinth, who had a, a pension for faith that was worked in with flash and fame. They wanted to follow the, not just the apostles, the super apostles. They, they liked a, a faith that had some influence with it. If you're on social media, uh, maybe you know if you're not, and you don't already follow this account, I'm gonna ruin uh, something for you, and you're gonna find it, it's, it's gonna make you laugh. Preachers with sneakers, if you ever followed this social media account. The church in Corinth was the people that they highlight. They'll take pictures of people preaching in their church, and then they'll circle the shoes, and then they'll pull up the, like, where you buy them online. It'll be like $6,000 Nikes. I'm like, $6,000 car is okay for me. That's insane <laughs> to buy a pair of shoes. Like, that's crazy. And, and, hey, that's the church in Corinth. They are preachers with sneakers. They're like, show me the flash. Show me the fame. Show me the influential. I want to know whose name baptized me. And Paul takes the first two chapters of his letter to Corinthians and pretty much scolds them for their view. 
Paul says that God shames the wise and the powerful by preaching a message that seems foolish through the simplest people. And even Paul's ministry posture, he points back and goes, look, I, I didn't come to you with some sort of fancy speech. I came to you with an overly simplistic message of Christ and Christ crucified. Or how about at the end of the next letter to Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, where Paul describes God's power and weakness. And Paul talks about this thorn of the flesh he's been wrestling with and asking God, take it away from me. And he says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The kingdom of God does not see the weak, the small, the young, the simple, the overlooked things as a hurdle to overcome. God does not see those as a hurdle to overcome. God sees them as an opportunity to show his power in and through those weak things. The kingdom of God comes precisely through those kinds of small, weak, and overlooked things. And it's to show that the power is from God. Small things like a mustard seed, or small things like a little bit of leaven that would mix through the entire piece of dough. So, let's test our hearts with this truth. How comfortable are you with things that start small? How comfortable are you with weakness and simplicity? Do you feel like you need the same kind of flash and fame that maybe the Corinthians did? If you feel like you need that, you might miss, you might not have the right kind of heart to receive Christ the King. If you desire greatness so much that you're unable to recognize God's work in the small, mostly overlooked things that take a long time, then you'll miss his kingdom because that's what his kingdom is about. Small, mostly overlooked things done over a long period of time is what Zach Eswine says. So can you see God's work in what seems small and ordinary? Can you be content with God using you, working in you in small, ordinary ways? Are you content with that? Can you see through limitations to find God's infinite power at work? Can you see through a nobody from a small town called Nazareth with unwed parents. Can you see through that person? We talked about a long time ago when we did that uh, sermon on him being from Nazareth, Jesus being from Nazareth, that it says he'll be called a Nazarene and he's from Nazareth. And we talked about like, what in the world does that mean? Somebody from Nazareth wasn't necessarily called a Nazarene and what's the Old Testament passage that's talking about there? And essentially Nazareth means like stick town. Like can you see through somebody from that kind of place that he would be the savior of the world, that he would be God himself? If you can't see that, you miss everything. Test your hearts this morning. Test your hearts as it relates to greatness. Are you willing to embrace the small beginnings of the kingdom? Here's the second test, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. So in these two parables, again, short, they're mirroring the other two, but they're kind of giving us a different test, the test of value. In these parables, we have two individuals find something shockingly value and give up everything they have to buy this thing that is apparently priceless to them. 
But both these stories emphasize a few of the same things. Okay, let me come over here to the side for a second and have a, a different category. Teach you about Bible study. We try to do this as we preach. When I was in seminary, one of the first things they teach you, in, and I just took a basic Bible study class, okay? It was called hermeneutics because we've got to make things more difficult than it is, but it's just how to study the Bible, okay? And one of the first principles of studying the Bible is observe. Again, we've got to make that kind of a bigger word, make ourselves sound a little more important. Notice things. Just look at it. So I remember our professor telling us, hey, here's a few verses. Go bring me 10 observations from these verses. Don't tell me what it means. Just observe things that you see in there, right? So we'd come back with, you know, 10 things. All right, go find 10 more. Go find 10 more, and then he gives us, you know, five or 10 more minutes. All right, I want you to find 50 more things. You're thinking, I don't have 50 more things. These verses don't even have 50 words. What kind of observations am I supposed to find there? But if you're studying the Bible and you really look and you begin to notice and pray and say, God, help me to observe what are things that are repeated? What are things that are said over and over? What are key words here? What am I looking for as I study the Bible? Observe a few things with me about these couple of parables. What they found in both of these parables was improbable. This guy just finds a treasure in a field. I mean, I can see the age of all of you, so you were all a kid at one point. We've all looked for buried treasure. Don't lie. And judging by the fact that you're still here, I'm guessing you didn't find it. (laughs) I mean, that is crazy improbable to find. Or, Or the guy in the second parable, he's a merchant. He probably deals in pearls. He comes across them all the time. What are the chances he finds one that so outshines every other one that he says, forget the business, I want this one. This is, this is wildly improbable. What they found was also valuable. What they found produced joy in both of them. It was joy producing. And then what they found made everything else in their life fade away in light of it. You notice that? They sold everything. They let go of everything because they wanted this one improbable, valuable, joy-producing thing that they happened to find. So they sold everything. Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's invaluable, which is a funny word. doesn't mean it's not valuable. It means it's so valuable that you almost can't put a price on it. So let's use this to test our hearts for a second. We can think back to our opening parable of the soils. And some of the soil had thorns growing up in it. And when the word of the kingdom tried to get sowed in that soil with the thorns, it grew, but then it got choked out by, it says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. So the question for you is, what's choking the word of the kingdom out in your life? What are those other things you value that are keeping you from forsaking all and valuing and treasuring the word of the kingdom? Treasuring the king of the kingdom. When we see that the only proper place for God's kingdom to have in our life is first place, it challenges everything else that might be there. Do you realize that? That's what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God is like something that can only have first place. It has no other places. And you say, look, I, I'll come. Like, I'll be here as much as I can. Like, during travel sports season, don't schedule me for kids. And hey, I don't... I don't know how much I'm going to actually read my Bible. Like, that's why I come to you, man. That's your job. 
you know? And, and, and the kingdom of God is a commodity you add on to your life. Let, let me try to paint a picture of what that might be like for you. Imagine you're married. And your wife says, I feel disconnected from you. And you say, well, I go work and I bring my money home. And I put a lot of money towards the mortgage of this house that we live in. And I put a lot of my money towards the bills we have. And I save up money so we can get Christmas and birthday and vacations together with our kids. I sleep here and I share a bed with you every single night. What do you mean we feel disconnected? She said, I just feel disconnected. And he says, well, I love you and I do all those things for you. I mean, sure, I have two or three other love interests at work and at the gym and in these other places, but I do all of those things for you. It would be very clear why she feels disconnected. Because it's very obvious that she's either first place or no place. Right? That is exactly what the kingdom of God is like. There is no, like, I'm going to kind of test all these things out, and we'll see what sifts through all together. But if that happened in um, marriage, the relationship would end. Not that it couldn't be repaired, but the marriage would effectively end. That would be the death of that marriage. What, in your deepest heart, is your highest value? What are the things that you would say you cannot live without? What are the things that you would never be willing to give up if God asked you? Do you treasure and value the kingdom like these parables describe? And is the kingdom a priceless treasure for you? Those are the two main tests we set up. But there's a couple other parables that happen in here. And this is our third and final test. We can test the trajectory of our lives with this third test. In verses 24 to 30, here's what Matthew says. He put another parable for him. He knew heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to him, An enemy's done this. So the servant said, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and then at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but then gather the wheat and put it into my barn. Then uh, you have another parable in verses 47 to 50 that sounds kind of similar. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown in the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men pulled it, drew it ashore, and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but then they threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In both of these parables, we see different things growing up, wheat and weeds. We see good fish and bad fish, and then at the end, Not now, but at the end, we see a great sorting of those things into one or the other. So in all these parables, what's Jesus trying to do? Let's remember, he wants us to test our hearts. This is is one big chapter of a heart exam. In all these parables, we're trying to test our hearts. And it can feel a bit like we're getting tested at the doctor. We walk in, and even though we do go yearly, and maybe more than that at times, and we kind of know our way around, 
There's also, there's always a sense that like I'm wrong when I'm there. I don't know if you feel like that, but you go in the doctor's office, you're like, I don't, I'm, I'm not supposed to be sitting here. I should be over there. Am I in your way? Is this the right room? Am I going the right way? Am I doing this the right way? And, and you're, you're not totally sure how all it works. We're not sure how everything in the procedure goes. They're doing something new. Are they not? I've been coming here for 20 years. They asked me to fill out paperwork, and they do it every six months. Do they lose this every time? Do they remember who I am? I, I don't know. But, and then I go back, and, oh, we got to do this other test this week, and there's machines. I don't know how they work. But the doctor walks in, who's about to perform all of these wonderful tests, and he's going to tell me how I am, or she's going to tell me how I am. Doctor walks in, wash the hands. How you feeling? I'm here, aren't I? You tell me. How about you run your test and you tell me? Doctor says, how you feeling? How do you answer every single time? Feeling pretty good. It's like, I'm doing all right. I'm feeling pretty good. We don't see any big problems. We think we're doing all right. Nothing major to be concerned about. Huh? Doing all right. Just like these visits to the doctor. We look at the professional right in the face and say, doing okay. Really? I think I'm all right. We may say we're doing all right and we don't have any idea quite how bad we're doing we need them to tell us we might go in there and we might really have no idea and there might be all sorts of problems that we're going to discover but we might go in and we might know exactly how bad we are we might say doing good maybe you've done that today you wouldn't be the first to do that here i've done that here plenty of times how are you good and really, you know underneath, there's all sorts of problems and challenges and struggles. So what do we do when we're testing our hearts and we're finding things, but what do we do when we're lying to ourselves? What do we do when we're lying to the community we're a part of? Because apparently, when you uh, don't tell the truth about which one you are and what these tests reveal, Jesus says that the good and bad fish are getting pulled in together. Jesus says that the wheat and the weeds are going to grow up together. So that means you can live, this ought to put a little fear in us, you can live your whole life in a Christian community doing Christian things, fooling yourself into thinking you're in one category when you're really in the other. And you won't know until the end. Or maybe you'll know the whole time. It's not that you won't know until the end. I need to, I need to back that up. God's not going to leave you guessing. It won't be revealed until the end. Okay? You could live your whole life in a spiritual community. You could lie to yourself. You can lie to others. You can attempt to lie to God. We can put on a face. We can embrace practices. We can do the spiritual thing as best as we possibly can. We can get ready to take all these tests, look the doctor in the face, and say, I'm doing all right. But as both of these parables tell us, there is a judgment coming because our hearts reveal the trajectory of our lives. And in the end, only God knows us well enough to judge us. And you see what the judgment of God does, right? See, the judgment of God is when he simply gives us up to the natural consequences of our loves. He says, you love this supremely, you can have it. Now, if you read the prophets of the Old Testament, what you'll see is that's how God talked to people who worshiped idols. There are other places, just like this passage in Isaiah 6, where he says, Seeing, you don't really see. You have eyes, you don't see. You have ears, you don't hear. You have mouths, but you don't speak. What he's saying is, you're becoming like the idols you worship. You've taken a wonderful piece of wood that I created, 
carved a face into it, and bow down and worship it. And that piece of wood has eyes, but it can't see. It has ears, but it can't hear you pray. It has a mouth, but it doesn't speak to you. And you're becoming just like that. You love that thing, ultimately, you think that thing will bring you life? You can become just like it. You can love it so much, I will give you over to it. That's what the judgment of God is. If you so badly want a life without me, I'll give you eternity without me. Now, the logical consequences of that is that God is the source of life. So to separate ourselves from the one who is life means we're embracing an eternity of death. Jesus tells us earlier in Matthew that there are things we can love that will rust and fall apart and be destroyed and then our hearts are gonna cave in because we'll be separated from the thing that we thought would complete us. And one day, God will judge the truth of our hearts and he will call us to these things. And you won't be able to hide. You won't be able to answer, yeah, yeah, I feel fine, I'm good. On that day, you will face the one who knows you perfectly and he will separate all those who are true followers from Jesus from all those who are not. Because that is how deeply God knows you. You can lie to me, you can lie to yourself, you can lie to those who know you best, you can lie to this church. But you will never be able to lie to God. Now, we're not gonna say amen. The sermon's not over. This isn't the part where we pull out the big uh, guilt hook punch and pull you in. This is the part where we say, so what is our hope? I think that deep knowledge that God has about us is actually the best news in the world. You might hear that and feel totally overwhelmed. You might hear that and feel crushed. We don't want to take an honest look at our hearts. We don't want to examine our hearts like Jesus says. And it can be hard to examine ourselves honestly because we have this like faulty scale we're using where maybe on the one hand, we're too hard on ourselves and we crush ourselves when we try to examine our hearts. Or on the other side, we might be too lax. We let ourselves slide on things that we want to keep living for and embracing and idols we want to keep worshiping, sins we want to keep practicing. So we have this faulty scale. But if you search your heart truthfully, you're, you're really going to be quite disappointed. No one actually believes people are basically good for a couple of reasons. One, we all invest heavily in locks. Ha, 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 ha. We lock our doors and stuff. The other reason is you have to live with yourself. No one takes an honest look at themselves and says, I'm basically good. We all have things we don't like about ourselves. We all have things we know aren't right about ourselves. Here's, you might be going, waiting for the good news. Waiting for the good news, Johnny. The good news is that Jesus is the doctor in the room when we say, I'm fine, when we do this heart exam, and he takes up the exam himself. And he examines your heart. And he doesn't hold anything back. He does not deny just how broken you are. He doesn't sugarcoat your reality. He doesn't sugarcoat how great your need is. Don't come to Jesus if you want pat answers. If you want cheesy comfort about how you're really doing fine, that don't come to Jesus for that because that's not what you're gonna get. Jesus is brutally honest. He says it here in the text. You don't see or understand. Your heart's divided because you care too much about the world. You will end up getting thrown out of the kingdom. Those are the words of Jesus. Hey, he sees your reality and he's very brutally honest about it. But Jesus also deals graciously with the reality of our hearts. 
He doesn't give us over to a brutal truth that will crush us, like you might be tempted to do with yourself. See, Jesus has come not only to be the one who is just. See, the just one is the one who wants punishment, who wants justice, right? We want justice for everything that is done wrong. Jesus is just. He will come and judge our hearts, and in the end, he will judge us. But he did not come just to be the one who is just. Romans tells us he comes to be the one who is just and the justifier. Who's the justifier? The justifier is the criminal defense attorney that defends even the most obvious criminals. Doesn't that bother you? I know there's attorneys in the room. It bothers me so bad. You think about criminal defense, you go, how can you defend someone like that? It is a perfect example of what Jesus does. He is the just judge, and he is the criminal defense attorney that defends the most obvious of criminals, me. Jesus is both. He pulls no punches in his judgment. But he also does not flinch to stand and be your advocate before God. So as you examine your heart and you're about to drown in what you're finding, what do we do? What do we do? We realize in this passage that this is all about how we receive the word of Jesus and we realize we don't receive the word well. We haven't received the word well and so we should get the judgment. Right? That's what he's saying. Hey, if you don't Receive the word well. If you don't respond to Jesus well, you're gonna be the weeds that are gathered up and burned. You're gonna be judged and condemned and sent away from God forever. And you read this passage, you come to the conclusion, that is me. Like, if, if this is right, you don't even have to admit this is right yet, but you just say, if this is right, then that's the category I find myself in. That's where we should all find ourselves in. But you look at that and you go, what's gonna happen? Justice says that's got to happen to somebody. You're right. It does. But the beautiful story of the gospel is that that somebody is not you. That judgment does have to happen to somebody. But it doesn't have to be you. Because Jesus stepped in and knew you would not receive the word well. He knew your end would be judgment and separation from God. Which is why when he came, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Where he knew he would be opposed, he would be arrested, he would be persecuted, he would be beaten. He would be forced to carry a cross, he would be forced to hang there and die. As if he were guilty and worthy of judgment. The guilty don't have to stand in judgment because the innocent did for us. So as you read this text and you're examining your hearts and you realize, I don't have what it takes. That is precisely the point in the scripture where God wants you to turn to Christ and see how he perfectly meets that need. You see, we're always testing our hearts. And that test will expose our need for Jesus. It'll expose our desire for Jesus, I hope. And this vulnerability, only, only by being that vulnerable can you actually experience his grace and not just learn about it up here. We could all say amen and act like we're applying this to some third party. 
But if you want to feel this for yourself, you've got to admit that that's you that deserves that. You've got to admit that he hung in your place on the cross. Not just that he happened to do that and that that was a nice thing and that he did that for other people. But you've got to come and be vulnerable before him. What we'll find is that over time, as we daily walk with him and we submit our lives to him so that he can examine us with perfect honesty and perfect grace, we'll find that he's changing us. And we'll find that our lives actually resemble the mustard seed and the leaven. And it will grow into something glorious and beautiful. But we can only come and experience his grace if we allow ourselves to be vulnerable before him. We have to risk rejection to find grace. So come daily before Jesus, confessing our sin as the, Lord prayer, as the Lord's prayer says and as 1 John says, and we will find his gracious forgiveness because we will find that he stood in our place. So Matthew 13, come and examine your heart and do it with the expert of it. Do it with the expert of your heart because he will examine your heart in total honesty and he will examine your heart with pure grace. He will find that you have an incurable disease in your heart. And what he will do is he will say, let's, let's trade. I'll take your sick heart and you take my pure one. I'll take your heart that's gonna kill you and I'll actually let it kill me. And you take my heart of life and live with God forever. Let's pray. God, we love you. We're glad the whole Bible leads us to Jesus or else it would crush us underneath the weight of what it asks us to do. But thank you that in Jesus, we actually can live this out. We actually can experience your grace as we examine our hearts. And as we pursue self-awareness today, Jesus, we pray that you would be with us in that journey. And as we're unloading the boxes in the basement of our hearts and things that we thought we'd hidden away, we realize that you see us and you love us and you died for us so that we could have life forever with you. It is in your name that we're praying this morning.